Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Andrew Tiverson. Andrew is the director and owner of The Stage Bus, a Birmingham-based company which provides outdoor stages and equipment for festivals and events. Uh, Andrew, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hello. Great to have you uh, here, Andrew. So um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about the topic of uh, leadership. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Um, leader, it's an interesting question. Um, le- leadership, certainly I find within within what we do and stuff, is uh, it, it's about bringing people along with you um, and, and, uh, and making things happen between people, making something, you know, it, help, helping, helping, helping the people around you to, to follow, to achieve a goal. Absolutely, it's very much um, a collective um, achievement being a leader, isn't it? It's not just about one man or one woman leading a show, it's very much a team effort. That's something that's quite important to remember. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the things I find that a lot of people who don't don't who don't operate in business or don't really understand running businesses don't really get is that actually running a good business is about is about isn't about telling people what to do. It's about listening to people, and actually, good leadership is about listening more than more than telling a lot of the time. Um, and a, a really good leader isn't always the person with all the ideas. It's the person who can who can take the ideas from the people around them, mix them together, and and get everybody to follow the same track to make. Happen. Absolutely. So to have an effective team that somebody can really lead, what sorts of qualities would you look for in recruiting your own sort of team members, Andrew, just to give it a little bit of an idea of that? Um, I, 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 I like the people to, I like to foster a sort of environment where everybody is, uh, where, where it's almost nothing, nothing's off limits. You can, uh, you can be completely honest about things um, and you expect people to be honest. And you expect people to tell you if tell you if you're wrong, um, and also an atmosphere where people can ask um, ask for help and can tell you when you need help. Um, I mean, I, I like I always say that I look for I, when I'm when I'm looking for staff or looking for people to work work with me. I always employ on attitude rather than skills because you can teach skills, but attitude is much more difficult. And I always try to get people with with a sort of a team attitude and a can-do attitude as well, a sort of a positive, like, we'll find a, we'll find a way to make this work in some form, um, rather than so, so so much of the world spends their life telling you why, why things can't be done, rather than trying to think of ways that it can be done. Absolutely. And um, you mentioned there, of course, and you look for people with a ready-made attitude. If we take that sort of into leadership now, because great leaders, they come with um, an innate attitude. They come with an innate hunger and motivation, as it were. But let's be quite honest, they're not born necessarily with the skills that are necessary to be a leader. Those are things that you can develop throughout time. But some things you have to have from the get-go, don't you? Uh, to some extent, yes. I think the other thing is it does depend on who, who you're leading to do what, in what circumstance, because actually there, there is a, with, with leadership, there's certainly a thing where, um, you know, you, it's the right person at the right time type scenario that, you know, it's good, sort of good, good, good historical example is uh, either Churchill or Hitler. To be honest, neither of them would have been big figures if the particular political, so, social political situation that was going on in the 1930s hadn't have happened. Neither of them would have ended up, both of them would have been, you know, nobody would have known who they were, sort of thing. So it's it's also a certain amount of chance and just happening to be the right person in the right place at the right time for the circumstance that's going on around you. 
Absolutely. And um, you mentioned, of course, him a name there in uh, Churchill. Um, is he an example um, of a um, leader who's maybe had an influence on your own leadership style or are there maybe other individuals? Not, not particularly. I mean, I don't, I, I can't say I could really sort of um, play, place sort of anyone particularly for leadership. You know, who leadership style. I mean, there's, there's people who influence me and people who've made, you know, people who I who I have worked with in my life or done things with in my life that have kind of, you know, you you emulate and actually respect and try to um, like um, do. You know, they, they have motivated you and encouraged you, which is something I want to do to other people. That's really interesting, actually, because it's been mentioned more than once uh, during this uh, particular series that some people's greatest inspirations are people that they've met within business, people who aren't necessarily household names. So quite often we see good and effective leadership quite often going under the radar because these people aren't necessarily not aren't necessarily celebrities or household names displaying these qualities. If we consider that for a moment, Andrew, do you think that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Um, I think that good leadership is misunderstood a lot of the time. Um, I think the people who are celebrated as good uh, as good leaders are often actually not terribly good leaders. They're often they're often people who are out for their own agenda, are quite selfish, and don't really um, and, and and are and are people who, who who are hungry for power rather than being good at leadership and um, they're not quite the same thing but actually but, but often people can't tell the difference or don't know the difference that's um really interesting and um if we think about your career uh, for a moment um andrew of course um, you set up uh, the stage bus fresh from graduating from the uh, university did you always imagine quite early in your life that you'd end up in a position of leadership yourself um i'm not really sure i mean i've i've I, I ended up doing what I'm doing partly because it, it, it enabled. You know, I, I've always, I've, I've never really worked for anyone else. Even when I was a teenager, I used to, I used to do, do discos and fix people, fix hi-fi equipment, and I used to go around the charity shop and pick up stuff that was being couldn't they couldn't sell because it had, hadn't been electrically tested, repair it and sell it, and sort of it just progressed as I went through. And um, when I sort of started this business, um, when I came out of university, I did, I did a mechanical engineering university and had been doing sound and lighting a lot at the uh, studio union um and this was a harebrained scheme that i'd had um and i thought well i'll give it a try see it see what happens with it and there's i think almost doing it has proven the, my ability to lead and the fact that it has grown rather than because i originally kind of did it with a, a five-year plan in mind just, just you know i'll do it for five years and to be honest i'll see what happens and if it doesn't work then you know it, the worst that could possibly happen is i'll go bankrupt i've got a decent degree i'm only i'm only in my early 20s i've got no commitments actually if you don't give it to try with something like that, um, then, then you know, wh when are you going to? And I suppose that's another key thing with leadership sometimes is knowing when to take a gamble, knowing when actually to go, actually, the yes, there are risks here, but actually this is worth taking the risk because the, what, what, the worst that could go wrong at this point in time is, isn't, isn't actually an issue. Like, I can, I can deal with that. And if I don't try it now, I'm not going to have another chance. So actually, I need to, I need to take people with me at this point because this is when we can do this and, and we won't get another chance at it sort of thing. Absolutely. And being able to make those sorts of decisions in a business context, especially, is absolutely massive uh, being a leader. Um, given your 14 years experience that you've now accumulated in um, the, uh, the business, Andrew, um, what advice would you give to somebody who is about to start their first day in a leadership role? Um, listen to people, actually. Um, l listen and make people feel valued because you're, there, there's nothing, you know, that, that 
you, no matter how clever you are or how clever you think you are, um, there will be someone else in your team who will, who will know more about something you are doing than you do. And sometimes that person may be someone who's not used to or not good at speaking out, giving their opinion. And actually the really key thing is to get the, get to, is to get people to trust you, respect you and to, to listen to what people have to say. And just because you, and, and also learn how to tell, how to, you can listen to someone and go, actually, no, I don't think that's going to work without putting them down and making them feel like they shouldn't have said anything. But even a bad, even a, even an opinion or even an idea that's wrong isn't going to work or, or is problematic isn't a bad thing to have been brought to the table. There's, no, there's nothing that should be off limits to be brought to the table for the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having that dynamic, having that trust, and especially um, in uh, current affairs, is hugely important with a lot of businesses working from home in the wake of COVID-19, no less. Um, how has yes. it actually been for yourselves over the past couple of weeks, just to touch on that? Uh, well, to, to, to put it into um, three into um, two words, everything's cancelled. Um, so um, we're all sort of, uh, uh, we, well, we, um, so we, we do mobile, we do solar powered mobile stages for outdoor events. So we have vehicles that fold into performance spaces that go, that we take around the country and do, do events all over the place. The reasonable chance fair number of your listeners have come across us at a Christmas lights or a local charity fair or, or something else. We get about quite a bit. Um, but so we, the COVID-19 came in just as, uh, as we were getting into the season. We really get, we start, things start happening in kind of April particularly I mean before then we spend the winter doing all our maintenance and we manufacture all our own units so everything's designed and built in house um, but so it was just just as we were coming into uh, to kind of get right, um, uh, basically getting ramped up to starting the season it, it all kind of um, just stopped um, like nobody paid their deposits and um, everyone sort of uh, kind of nobody knows what's going to happen so I mean we've so we like thankfully we've got a very good working relationship I've got a very good working relationship with all my staff I've got a good working relationship with my landlord um, uh, so we've managed to actually um, kind of every, everyone's pulling together to, to get us through this and make this happen um, I mean basically everyone's everyone pretty much everyone's working from home I mean I'm popping into the workshop occasionally largely because if I'm the only uh, being the only person there and just keeping an eye on the place but like all my staff have taken home have taken home cases full of work even the workshop staff who who's doing sort of stuff who normally are doing the kind of work you can't do from home everyone's organised to get a case full of stuff which I've dropped off to everyone's houses so they can get on with bits even if it's not the most useful stuff that we you know lots of things are being done that have been on the to-do list for about four years and no one ever gets around to but it's as much about actually keeping my staff motivated and giving them something to do in this time so they don't go spare sitting at home with nothing to do and actually kind of I've been, you know, we, we, we've been sort of, yeah, it, it's, it's as actually doing, as actually kind of trying to get things done for the business. If you see what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And um, let's, as I say, hope that we start seeing an upward trajectory sooner rather than later and we can come out of the other side of that. Um, I am conscious, Andrew, of uh, running out of time, but before we do we'll wrap things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself, for the stage buzz, and what you hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond the outbreak. Well, um, we've been uh, we've had a new a new product we've been we've been developing, which we sort of launched earlier this year at, at the event production show, uh, which is a um, it's a shipper container that lifts itself on the back of the lorry and turns into a stage that's much more which aimed at a, 
as a much more sort of corporate market than what than a lot of the work we've done in the past. And we're also doing we're looking at being able to do that as a lease hire or product or even a product to sell. We've got we've got inquiries from all from other places in the world to, uh, to to build to build these things and send them over there. So we're really hoping to get that all um, all actually moving properly and sort of the um, and and the the website that's just been launched and we're and, and all the technology that we're developing to go in this um, to mean that it can be to make it so that it's really robust and things. So we're really looking forward to to that being uh, that. That's what we're hoping is going to be the kind of new big thing from us, if you see what I mean. Um, and otherwise, let's hope that that we can all go and have a bloody good party when this finishes. We think we're going, presuming that this this we're all back back to normal by kind of the back end of the summer autumn. It's going to be a very very busy um, summer and autumn, I should think, of everybody wanting to get their events in that they haven't done the rest of the year, and everyone else just wanting to go and uh, go and let their hair down because everyone's been cooped up in the house and getting stressed. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And uh, let's hope that we do come out of the other side and there is um, that uh, positive um, atmosphere as well. I think it um, would do everybody some good, really. Um, Indeed. I'm sure we will. <laughs> yes, um, likewise. Um, Andrew, I have to say it's been um, an absolute pleasure and really insightful having you on the uh, the programme today. And uh, I think it would be fantastic as well um, to perhaps even have you back on in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and just see how things have uh, panned out in that sense. So thanks so much for coming on to speak to me and also Thank you. sharing that with the listeners as well. Brilliant. Thank you. We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out 
literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and 
to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. 
and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job absolutely um and w- with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players focus and interest um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time (laughs) so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage 
some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in, your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of, you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December, uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death. And yes. 
you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what, what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.